0: Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill, and I'm here with my co host, Ken Jacobson. Hi,
1: Mike. How are you doing?
0: It was great speaking with Alonso Ruiz Palacios about his documentary film, A Cop Movie. It is a very difficult movie to describe briefly. Here's how Alonso describes it A Cop Movie is a film that explores
2: what it's like to be a police officer in Mexico City, but it's a formal experiment in which two actors, undertake the roles of real policemen, and then the reality
0: gets blended with fiction. You'll have to watch it to really grasp all the twists and turns, both in terms of plot, but also in terms of the way he's depicting this story.
1: A cop movie, it's a really fascinating movie, and it is available now on Netflix, so definitely check it out. Alonso was our first filmmaker who we've talked to, who's worked primarily in narrative filmmaking. In fact, this is his documentary feature debut. And you can really see that aesthetic applied to this film. He's got a tremendous amount of control over the script and the image, the frame. He's working with actors and recreations. But what I loved is there was also a palpable openness to the spontaneity and serendipity that documentary can provide as well as grounding in things like interviews and quote-unquote real events.
0: You may notice if you watch this on Netflix, and you certainly should, that the algorithm may recommend Narcos Mexico to you. And you may think the algorithm is just making a generic connection between these two films. But in fact, Alonso was a director on two episodes of the second season of Narcos Mexico.
1: Alonso was born and currently lives in Mexico City. He studied stage directing in Mexico City before moving to London, where he trained as an actor at RADA. He writes and directs both for stage and screen. A cop movie premiered at the 2021 Berlin International Film Festival, where it was awarded a Silver Bear for outstanding artistic contribution for editing. As part of this year's award season, we've seen that it's already been nominated for Cinema Eye Honors Awards and Critics' Choice Awards. In 2018, He had a very busy year. He directed the movie Museo, starring Gael Garcia Bernal. The film won the Best Script Award at the Berlin International Film Festival, and it tells the story of the famous robbery at the National Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City in 1985. As mentioned, Alonso also directed two episodes of Narcos Mexico in 2018, and also directed episodes in two Mexican TV series, Vida and Here on Earth. His debut feature, Garros, in 2014, shot in black and white, was lauded by critics and won five Ariel Awards, which is the Mexican equivalent of the Oscars, including Best Picture, Best First Film, and Best Director. In 2019, Alonso was named to Variety's 10 Directors to Watch list, and Variety described him as, quote, a visionary, and being at the forefront of the next generation of Mexican directors. Clearly, based on just a cop movie, I think we can agree, he's a talent to watch.
0: If you like this conversation, please follow us, like the episode, rate the show, or share us on social media. It really does help other lovers of documentary find these conversations. Coming up our discussion with Alonso about his film, A Cop Movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. He's a smart, engaged filmmaker who makes a lot of references to pop culture and high culture. After you hear the conversation, you'll see even more in this film. Alonso, welcome to Top Docs. Thank
1: you. Hi, Alonso. Great to be with you today. And congratulations on a cop movie. Fascinating, wonderful film.
0: Thank you, Ken. So Alonso, do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you've seen in the past or more recently that you think doesn't get the attention that it should? There's two films I would say. One of them is Waltz with Bashir. I think it
2: is an absolute gem and I keep watching that and I just like marvel at it. And It's so great how it really pushes the genre and the form. And it's just beautiful. It's really eye-opening in every way. And the other one is, I don't know if it's a documentary to be honest, but it's a film by Lars von Trier called The Five Obstructions. And and I think it's it's a masterpiece. It's definitely my favorite von Trier film. It's one of those movies that it's very hard to classify and to to explain even what it's about. You struggle coming up with a log line for that movie. It's so brilliant how it's really a, a love letter to his mentor, to this filmmaker, but it's where the Filmmaker's performing himself. I don't know, it's, it's such a brilliant movie that, and, and I think it's been left in the past. I, I, I keep watching it as well. And The English Surgeon was another doc that I really liked. It's so, so perfect and subtle. It's a small documentary about a particular thing, but it's so big in that way, just because it's about one person's life.
0: Why do you make documentary films?
2: I have to be honest. This is my very first documentary. I come from the fiction world completely. My previous approach to documentary was working for National Geographic uh, program about the independences in Latin America and how they came about. So we got to travel a lot and interview a lot of people. I think every director has to experience at some point in their life documentary because it's the birth of cinema. Documentary cinema is the very roots of cinema. I like Walter Murch's definition of the three fathers of cinema. To him are Beethoven, Flaubert, and Edison. In this wonderful book, The Conversations, he goes on about how he thinks those are the three fathers, and he goes on to explain what each one of them provided cinema with. Edison provided the technological side of films, Beethoven provided the musical variation, the thematic development within a piece, how it has to change, how it has to have flows and ebbs. But Flaubert provided cinema with an observation of reality, with documentary, if, if, if you will. And I think, to me, doing fiction, I've always been really interested in how reality can come into a scene and change what you had thought and make it better. In my two previous films, Gueros and Museo, I've played with having like completely documentary scenes in the middle of a fiction. And and so I've always been very interested in the dialogue between documentary and fiction, between what is real and what is staged. And so for me, making this movie was just like taking that a, a whole step further and, and just answering questions for myself about those things. But also, more importantly, I think it, it was just this story that we had to tell of Teresa Montoya. And I think that was the best way to tell this story. I met them and I fell in love with them and they wanted to share their story. They wanted to tell it. And and, and I think I was just a, a, a way to tell it. I was just like the medium to tell their story. So it, it was something that was more a necessity, I think, than than, than saying I have to, it, it has to be a documentary. It, it just, it's the movie that it turned out to be because that's the way the story had to be told.
1: Can you tell us where you found the two police officers, Teresa and Montoya, the so-called love patrol?
2: Yeah. <laughs> so when we decided we were going to make a movie about the police, because it's one of the big sort of talked issues in Mexico, unaddressed issues, the, the broken relationship between citizens and their police, we started looking for people and investigating. And one of the advisors who was with us from the very start, he said, oh, I've, I've met Teresa Montoya and because they, they have a program with the police from Yale University. They have a pilot program to develop educational programs for the police in instructing them in human rights and all sorts of things like to to make a better police force basically. And Teresa and Montoya were part of that pilot group. This advisor Rodrigo Canales told us you have to meet these guys. We interviewed a lot of policemen and we imagined like different movies, what they would have been like with the different candidates that we had. And in the end, when I talked to Teresa first she told me that story of th- that the movie begins with of how she helped deliver a birth with no medical training no ambulance support nothing and just the way she talks her sense of humor she's very self-deprecating and she's very aware of her place in the police force and, and her place in in the problems of corruption as well it just instantly was like this is the story and and then the fact that there was a love story at the center of it also was like perfect for
0: cinema. I've got to ask, how about that first opening shot of the shots, the sequence? I think it's wonderful, and incredibly layered, but also I think it's going to be jarring to a lot of people. So let me just explain a little bit what it is, which is we see red and blue police lights and maybe another element, maybe like a distorted headlight. We, we think we're hearing sirens, but then we also realize maybe this is a sung siren. Maybe this is a woman or someone with a feminine voice singing. And then if that's not crazy enough, we then see a piece of poetry that was apparently written by a police officer, won a a police poetry uh, contest, which to an American seems like I can't imagine police writing poetry at all, much less in a contest. That piece is really interesting because it says, I'll just uh, say in English transliteration, you will hear the sirens singing closer and closer, pray they are not singing for you this night. And that is an allusion to the Greek myth, the sirens who sing to the sailors and they crash on the rocks. It's also almost word for word, kind of a gloss on a very famous line from T.S. Eliot, which is, I've heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think they will sing to me. All this is going on. And then the lights bleed into the initial shots of the film, but it seems to stand on its own or maybe it does hint at a, a lot of other themes. Why did not you put this really fascinating bit in at the beginning of the movie?
2: The poem was there at the start, but the, for example, the, the soprano doing a siren voice. She's a, a friend of mine who's a, a wonderful soprano. I sent her like some different takes of a patrol siren and she did all these voices and we had a great time like putting all that together. But that, that came at the end. And it was, I think it to me, it's like a declaration of intentions. This is going to be a, a movie about myth and reality as well. I wanted to play with the myth as well. That poem, I, I just made that up. I wrote that. And it's not really from a police poetry competition. But there are similar competitions in the Mexican police and in, in NESA that we found they, they do have a writing competition. And they actually gave us this book that they published with like stories of cops. And they have poems there. And, and it's really cool. It really took us by surprise when we found that, that there was such a thing as a poet, as a narrative, competition in, in the police force and so I wanted to use that but of course that poem I, I needed something to to talk about sirens and about the sort of what it's like to be helpless in the middle of the city in Mexico City and and so I I, I just made that up but but it was also like a declaration of, of intentions
1: I, think. I, I also love the humor that it only won third prize <laughs> Yeah. exactly which I don't think is incidental the film, as, as heavy as it is, does have a lot of humor in it. Yeah. Can, can you talk about your decision to open things up and bring in some humor? The,
2: the film has humor because Teresa and Montoya have a, a big sense of humor. I think it really is down to them, and it's a, also something I'm attracted to as a storyteller. I can't take things too seriously for too long, and I think that's something that I really appreciated in Teresa, in both Teresa and Montoya. They're both Extraordinarily funny. I still, when I see Teresa now, she always comes up with something really funny and cracks me up all the time. She sent me the other day some pictures of our movie in in the pirate. In Mexico, it's very common to have pirate movies being sold outside the subway stations. Uh, And and so she sent me a copy and she was, please don't be mad. I bought some for my family. And she, she was like, now I'm famous in all the subways in Mexico. She has a great sense of humor. So I think the movie's sense of humor is down to to both Teresa and Montoya.
0: We probably should talk a little bit about the really fascinating structure, especially about the opening part of this movie, where you take the real narration from Teresa and Montoya and you have the actors basically perform it, lip sync it. Sometimes the visuals seem to be kind of literal translations of what's being spoken. Other times they seem disparate or even at odds with what's being spoken. Sometimes they add information that maybe wasn't spoken out loud, like taking bribes. Pretty early on, we hear that Teresa felt threatened by someone on the street who threatened her, so don't show up there. I'll hurt you. As the story's being told, she's doing mundane housework, but then she starts boiling these eggs and the boil gets louder. And it does seem like an internal representation of the pressure she was feeling. This shot, by the way, reminded me of a shot from Blade Runner. I don't know (laughs) if you had that in mind, but the boiling eggs. How did you think about that, like mixing, matching, competing, supplementary?
2: One of the rules when I was writing this movie was to have the image do something other than the sound. It's one of also like Bresson's mandates, let the sound do something other than the image. With this film, we definitely wanted that also because the sound was completely documentary and the image was completely staged or fictionalized. We wanted them occasionally to complement each other so that the audience wouldn't get completely lost. But in general, they're doing two disparate things. And it also, I think, is a comment on the normalization of a lot of the stuff that that they're talking about, the corruption. And we want it it to feel like it's an everyday thing, because it is. For them. While they're telling you something else, they're taking bribes or they're having to pay for their vest, their life vest or their bullets or all of that. About the eggs, I don't know. Those are images that sometimes I don't even know what they mean when I'm writing them. They're just like intuitive things. We took great pains to like get the shot where the egg would crack and start to seep out of the egg, where the yolk would start to come out. There's something there about a cracked egg about things being already cracked that I was trying to hint at. I guess it was that. I, I, I hadn't thought of the Blade Runner uh, reference, but maybe that was somewhere in my subconscious.
1: <laughs> Openings are always tricky in any kind of film, maybe in particular documentaries where you have a lot of choices. Your film is probably more scripted than perhaps any other film that we've covered in this podcast. But tell us how you decided to start with the long set piece of Teresa as the midwife helping somebody give birth to a child.
2: That, that was one of the first stories that she told me. I, I asked her when we met, what was the day you felt proudest? It was important to me to, to know that. And she told me that story. And instantly I knew for some reason, that was a good way to start the movie. And then writing it down and investigating it, that story has a lot of, poses a lot of the problems that are at the center of all of this, which is a mistrust towards the police, the citizens being helpless in the middle of the night with no ambulances. All of that is a true story. And it's told in her words. The fact that they had been calling, it's not uncommon in Mexico. There's a shortage of of ambulances. By the way, there's another really cool movie called Midnight Family about pirate ambulances, which was produced by my producers as well. We had this story, it was a heroic story, but in a very mundane and, and accidental way. That was the reason for picking that story because it kind of set the tone. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here in, in a cop's life in Mexico, and what it means to be a cop in Mexico City. And and then I think the way we shot it also was, like I said before, a sort of a declaration of intentions. And it, it was shot in a fake documentary style. We shot it handheld. And some people think it's completely documentary, what we're shooting. Other people who are more knowledgeable in the ways of cinema know that it's staged. It doesn't matter. I think what matters is the kind of the tone we're setting. But also in the middle of all this that is staged, what we do have is a real birth. When we shot all the scene, we had a dummy, which was a really crappy dummy. Roma's dummy it was too expensive. We couldn't get it and they wouldn't share it. They were like, no, this is just for Roma. We don't want, you know, we're like, we just, it's just one shot. We need a cool dummy. And so we couldn't get it. And, and we ended up with a really crappy dummy. And, and so we shot it. And that night was like, no, this isn't going to work. We need to do an insert of a real birth we got in touch with a, a midwife who was our advisor for the scene. She was like, I know a, a woman who, who's willing to do it. She's having a baby in three months. And so we waited and we talked to her and convinced her. And so we shot her birth with the same camera, the same anamorphic lenses in her home. And she had to wear the same robe that the actress was wearing. And we lit the whole thing in a similar way in exchange for a really good, home movie of her birth. That beginning scene already has this mix of fiction and reality. The, the boy that's coming out is a real birth. And I, I think when you see that, you instantly, you know, you're watching a real birth. I think the film goes on to blur the lines between fiction and, and documentary from there.
1: When we asked you to name Hidden Gem, one of the films you mentioned was The Five Obstructions yeah. by Lars von Trier. And that movie introduces five basically rules that are going to be followed throughout the rest of the movie. What were the rules that you guys set up for yourselves in terms of narrative and documentary storytelling?
2: That's an interesting question. I think the main rule was that, like I said, I, I had this idea that I wanted a, a, to make a movie where the audio was documentary and the visuals were staged and i still have another movie in my head where to take that even further to have all the audio documentary and that was one of the rules i think and i think the other one was something probably to do with the exercising empathy as a working tool it's interesting to me to think of empathy as a tool it's the basic tool that the actors have to work with and and i think this was a journey of empathy of like entering something that's very removed from us, the cop's life, and and approaching it with empathy. Because to me, it, it didn't make sense to just make another movie sort of portraying all the atrocities that the police force do commit, the, the abuse of power and all those things that do happen. That's why we have that opening title sequence as well, by the way, because we have these images of basically cops behaving badly. To acknowledge with the audience This is what we know about the police force to be true. This does happen, but let's go further and try to understand why that happens. And how to do that, I think, is just with this very simple tool, we hardly are willing to put to use of of empathy, and that was the actor's journey. I think probably a a third rule would be that, that the movie had to structurally mimic the actor's journey into knowing from having all these preconceptions to taking them apart.
0: There's clearly something that's parallel between being an actor and being a cop. And I think Montoya even gives a little speech about this, saying once you put on the uniform, you got to commit to the role 100%. Is this something you imagined up front, or is this something that grew as you were in the process of making the film?
2: No, I think it's something that grew and that we discovered at one point of The keys as well was when we had these video diaries, the, the actors, they self shot these diaries on their iPhones when they're in the academy. And we had hours and hours of material. That was the hardest part to edit, by the way, because it was like picking the, what do you, what do you How do you say it? the wheat from the chaff? That was a very painstaking process. In the middle of all that chaff, I found this soundbite that I thought was wonderful where Monica, when she was like in the middle of it, really tired, she says, I think cops are playing a part. I think they are playing the role of somebody who is strong and has authority when in reality they are the most vulnerable people. And the, the fact that it came from her in the middle of realizing that and she articulated it perfectly, I thought that to me was like the key to explore that further. This idea of how a uniform can be a costume.
1: It is fascinating to watch Monica and Raul's process as actors. And some of this process is dictated by the approach of the film itself, for instance, by having them participate in reality in police academy training. And some of that is their own actor's process that I presume they go through on any film. And you yourself, I know, have an acting background. So how did the three of you kind of as a collaborative work on incorporating the actor's process into the film?
2: Also, I think another key factor for that was my co-writer, David Gaitan, who is a theater director and writer. He's a great, he's a very good playwright. We both have a a soft spot for actors. My wife is an actress. So I've been interested in the process. And also it's a kind of a way to resist. To me personally, a love for actors is going against the current in Mexico, which is all like art house Mexican cinema is like non-actors. And, you know, we hate actors. So it's my way of going against that current and proving to myself that you can make really convincing, deep things with highly skilled actors that sometimes you can't make with non-actors. There's something of that. There's something of a love letter to the profession of acting. But more importantly, I think it's to do with that, with finding that that cops are playing a part. When we found that early on in the investigation, that idea was the seed to bring in actors as well.
0: It really seems to me that some of the experiences of the cops is less a one-way street and more kind of a negotiation. And so you have this great scene where Matoya asks a belligerent, probably drunk young person to stay on the sidewalk. The Kid's not into it. He even nearly urinates on Matoya is not happy about this, but he lets the man mouth off a bit and walks away. And then an older gentleman shows up, and says, hey, I live in Miami and I can tell you, and he indicates the I me, mean, police would have taken the guy down, right? Mm-hmm. This would not be tolerated in the U.S. And Matias says, hey, in Mexico, we have rights. People have rights, uh, which is a fascinating comment on America. How do we read these negotiations and how do people see Mexican cops versus American cops, for example? I wouldn't dare to, to like
2: comment too much on, on, on American cops because I live and work in Mexico City, so I I, I really don't know other than what I've seen in films and documentaries goes on here with the cops but my sense is that the common fact is that there is a huge gap of mistrust between citizens and the police force and I think we have that in common that is so in both in Mexico and the U.S. there is a big mistrust people do not feel safe when there is a cop nearby which is insane because it should be the opposite. But I think the the specific factors, and we were asked this question uh, last night at Doc NYC screening about that. And I think, for example, race comes into play in almost in the opposite way in Mexico and the U.S., where in the U.S., I think, and what we see in the news and everything is, and, and the whole Black Lives Matter movement proves that it's cops being racist towards a minority and abusing their power. And it's a trend, right? And in Mexico, racism happens inversely. It's normally towards the cops that people, because cops in Mexico, like Monica says in her diaries, they are mostly indigenous. They come from very low income households. They have very low education level. Most of them didn't even make it to high school. And so there is a really racist attitude of the common, the average citizen towards Mexican cops. It's really shameful, but it's there and it's there every day. And they talk about it and all the cops that we spoke to talk about that. How They are definitely looked down on by the common citizen. So I think it's interesting that racism is there, but it's kind of inverted in the relationships between cops and citizens in Mexico and the US.
0: Mateo tells a story about he came from a pretty tough neighborhood and he runs into a friend from his primary school. The friend has been in prison and he's funny. He says you're a cop, you're a pig, I think he says, and here I am a criminal. And that seems like that line between the two worlds is a thin one.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's very much the case. Uh, uh, and that's why when. And Montoya says it's so matter of fact because it is like that. He has a lot of friends who became crooks and he decided to become a cop. Uh, and, it's, and he says, it, What an irony, but that's the way it is. The, we shot these images. The scene went on for longer in the final cut, they, they didn't make it, but a, of kids playing cops and robbers. And, and we in, he, he interviewed the kids that, that we got to play cops and robbers in a neighborhood. We had some great shots that didn't make it to the final cut of like, kids forcing and stuff that they see in movies and just like replicating that and then we asked them would you like to be a cop or a robber and some replied i'd like to be a cop but some replied i want to be a robber like we had this interview with one of the little kids i want to be a robber like why because i want to have a nice car and he was like very matter of fact about it and if you're a policeman you won't have a nice car
1: I want to ask you about trickery. (laughs) There's a certain amount of trickery in the film. And certainly, I think this is something you play with in terms of your engagement with the audience and upending their expectations, which also, I think, provokes them to see things in a new way. We were just talking about that scene with the actor Raúl being confronted or by the guy who doesn't want to listen to him and wants to just pee where he wants to pee. I have to say, even to this moment, I don't know if that's a case where you just took Raul and put him in a situation and filmed it from behind a tree or if you completely staged it.
2: Now that you said the word trickery, I remembered the film that I should have said before all of the other films that I think is a hidden gem that doesn't get the attention it deserves, which is F for Fake, Arson Welles's film about Trickery. That's how he starts saying trickery. And that was a film that I watched with my editor as well. I can't believe I I didn't say that one first. That to me is a seminal film in the history of of cinema and in my life as well. It's a film that I cherish a lot. I, I think we enjoy trickery. I enjoy trickery. We go to the cinema because we want to be fooled. We like a magic trick. There's something that is very, very enjoyable about experiencing a magic trick. In in a way, the director as a trickster, as a magician, I think is a figure that I've always been drawn to. Because I think it connects you with why you like cinema in the first place, which is when you're a kid, and there, there's like a magic show going on. In front of your Mm -hmm. eyes, I think you could probably say that directors are split into those who hate trickery and despise it and think of it as the lowest, cheapest form of entertainment. And cinema is about truth. I know a bunch of directors who are very self righteous about truth and all of that. But I see it differently. I've always loved the fun part of cinema as well. I like it when a director has fun with his audience. And it's something that I'm drawn to as well, I think, in in the films that I've made, for better or or worse. Um, And that particular scene, for example, was staged, was scripted. We needed a scene where you saw people sort of treating cops like their servants, basically. That was what that scene was about. And how cops are hand-tied because they don't have the proper training to deal with a situation like that adequately. It's either that or abuse of force. Every person who knows about law enforcement says that it shouldn't be one or the other. You, you should be able to uphold the law without abuse of force. And that striking that balance is r- really complicated. And, and probably, I, I don't know where they get it right, probably somewhere in Denmark or Sweden or something like that. And so we scripted that. We shot it with a long lens from a distance so that people wouldn't see the camera and we would just stage that guy in the drunk and those are our actors. But then the guy who comes in at the end was just a guy who was passing by who says that about America and American cops. And Raúl was wonderful. He stood, he didn't break character. He just stood there and he was like, he says to him, this is Mexico, man, because the, the other guy says, you couldn't get away with this shit in the U.S. If you try to pull this, he goes like that. And Raul just says, without breaking character, this is Mexico, man. Um, and and it was so wonderful. That also is like a seed of the whole film in itself in that it contains a blurry line between fiction and nonfiction.
0: Thanks for clearing that up, as it were. Uh <laughs> or complicating it. So let's ask about a different scene because I think this one is kind of a different flavor. You have a great chase scene where Teresa says, I guy. She jumps out of the car. She starts running. She's chasing him through this the subway. She vaults over the gates. We're not quite sure what's going on. We're not quite sure what this guy did. You know, she's drawing a gun on him in the middle of a crowded space. Can you talk about that scene? That seems like it's a little bit of a wink at, hey, it's a cop movie. We gotta have a chase scene. Yeah,
2: absolutely. That's it. And I think. It, it, it was a very whimsical scene in one way, but also I think it, in that it, it addressed the genre and I wanted that. By the way, the title of the film, A Cop Movie, was one of the first things that came to me when we started working on this. And I didn't quite know why. I thought it, like, everyone, all the, my producers and everyone was like, but that's the worst title. We can't call it that. And everyone thought it was a working title. You know, okay, we'll go with it as a working title. And I was like, no, it's not a working title. That's the title. That's what the movie is about. So we had to have like this wink to to genre. But then I think when we were writing that, what we realized was that going into that scene with that perspective, apart from humor and everything, was that it was going with Teresa and Montoya's imagination. It was flying with their imagination. They see themselves as those cops for a minute, as these heroic cops doing this chase. And the way they told it, they were telling like war stories. When somebody tells you that, it always has this romantic feel to it. I think it was important to step into their heads for a second in in the movie there and treat it in that filmic way.
1: I wanted to ask about another extended set piece, which is the motorcycle scene that effectively marks the end of the love patrol that scene in which Teresa I always have to stop myself because you know Raul Monica Teresa Montoya they all get mixed up in my my mind which is a testament to uh, how you have done such a great job of breaking down the barriers between the actors and the quote-unquote real characters but my question is in that scene Teresa and by extension Montoya Their careers are effectively ended because they are not going to bow down to the corruption that they're faced with there in that their bosses are in cahoots with the owners of this club who happens to be a congressman. They're going to keep their integrity and they're not going to go along. My question is, it seems like such a minor thing, such an everyday thing. The, the level of corruption here is not huge with national implications, yeah. but it has major life-changing consequences for these two, quote-unquote, good cops.
2: When we were writing the script, and obviously, I think that you face that challenge with any documentary, even with a more observational fly-on-the-wall documentary. You come across that point, or, or at least that's what I've spoken to, documentary filmmaker friends you come across that point where you think, okay, so what is the narrative arc? How are we going to end this? Where's the climax? Where's the turning point for for this story? We were looking for that. And and then, of course, it was right in front of us. They had talked about it from the start, why they fell out of love with the police force. And then we realized it was the story. It was the story of, I think there's two love stories in the movie. One is between Teresa and Montoya, and the other is the love story story, which has a tragic end or a sad ending, if not tragic, that is their love for the police and how that gets betrayed and how in the end, which is the reality of their lives, is that they quit the police force. And that was the breaking point. That moment where they had this encounter with this politician who was high up and he basically had the power to make their lives miserable until they they cracked and they said we're not taking this anymore they left the police it was hard to pick that as a climax because it was in a way like you said it's very mundane it's a very mundane scene it's not a very dramatic scene even though we dramatized it like to its fullest capacity that was as far as we could dramatize it without changing the facts we stuck to the facts we stuck to the narration and that was as far as we could dramatize it I see it now and I think it works in, in a way because it's not a very tragic incident. It's not a very, like you say, it's a very mundane scene. But I think that's also what's interesting to me about it, that it, it happens in real life. Those turning points happen that way in a quiet sort of way. And nobody hears a, about it. It's not a national scandal. It doesn't make the news. It's just a little thing that happens every day and that really screws people's lives.
0: The final scene, I think, is a very striking scene. It's a depiction of an event that happens in the Academy. Teresa has a rope tied to her arm, I assume, because many people who do this aren't able to swim. She has to jump up a high board. And she says, it's not a test of your ability to swim. It's a test of your decisiveness. And then we see her descend in ultra slow motion, I assume probably some sort of uh, visual effect, actually, into the water. That seems to have Deep meaning, literally deep meaning.
2: That's also something that we found in the interviews and then in the actors' diaries, how they still make them do the same test. It's a sort of a test of bravery or whatever, courage. They call it like that, the the test of courage. They have to jump from the 10 meter platform which might not sound like much, but when you're actually up there, we went up there to shoot on the 10-meter platform, and it's scary. If you fall the wrong way, you can really hurt yourself. Raúl says it at one point. He says, I think that's what being a cop is like. That's also one of the gems that we found in the diaries. It could well have been scripted, but it, those are his words. They went through that in their training process. He says, "And you have to jump from this platform, and you fall and you feel like you will never finish falling. And that's what I think being a cop feels like. When we found that in the diary, it was like, yes, that has to be the ending. I knew that was the ending. Because I, I really like the way Teresa tells it. it. It was a proof to herself that she could do it. She went home and she felt happy and satisfied. And she was like, this is a little triumph for me. I I thought it was a very moving thing. And by the way, when we shot, that's really, that's no visual effect or anything. That's the actress, Monica. What I really like about that shot where she's falling is that Monica didn't even know how to swim like the character when we started. And when we scripted this, I, I told her we might shoot this jump from the platform she was like, no, man, come on. I, you know." So we got her into training with a, a woman from the office, actually, from the production office, who, who was a diver. And so she went every week to, to dive in. I was like, how are you doing? How's it going? And she was like, I'll give you the five meter platform, but no more. She said, that's as, that's as far as I'll go. I can't. I'm not willing to do more. So we had set up to shoot on the five meter platform. And on the day she came up to me and she said, you know what, let's do it. I'm, I'm ready. Let's, I'm gonna, only going to give you one take to jump from the 10 meter platform. So I love that shot because I think it's like the biggest expression of like actor and character coming together in one. It's Monica's body and Teresa's story, like going there. It's not a stunt. It's Monica being really brave in this very simple act, but it, she's going through what the character is going through in that precise moment and shooting it with a super high speed camera really allows us to experience that.
0: Yeah, I've done the 10 meter. I know that's no joke. Um, I also (laughs) feel it's a little bit of a metaphor, if you will, for our experience, too. Like we we have to trust you in this film. Yeah, we got to trust you. We know that some of it's made up. We know some of it's quote unquote real. We had sort of taken a dive with you. Yeah,
2: I think. Daniela has said that, one of my two producers, she said that before, that for her, making this movie felt a bit like that, that we were all jumping off a platform and didn't know how we would land and just hoping that we would land on our feet with the movie. Because I think we were working outside our comfort zones. I was doing documentary when I'm not a, a documentary filmmaker. They were working with a fiction director. They've only done documentaries before. The actors were going into the academy. I don't know. Everyone was putting something out on the line. All movies are a collective work. But this particular movie, I think, owes a lot to a lot of people. And it's as much mine as it is the actors, especially. They have a double role in this film. They're actors, but they're also characters in the movie themselves. And, of course, Teresa Montoya, the police officers who are the central characters of of this movie and my producers, Elena and Daniela Fortes. We started dreaming this film like four years ago, and we've been on this journey very close working together until the end. The list could go on and on. But all the police officers in, in Ciudad Nezahualcóyotl who allowed us to portray the police without makeup the way that it really is, I think we... We couldn't have done the movie without them. And and all the advisors, we had some great advisors on public security and public policy who who helped us along the way. Ernesto Lopez Portillo, Elena Saola, Maru Suarez, just
0: key people who helped us along the way. Is there something that's up next for you that you want to discuss? Yeah, I'm, I'm prepping a new film. It's a fiction
2: and it's based on a stage play Um, the 1950s called The Kitchen, but I'm setting it in New York and it's basically the lives of undocumented Mexicans working in a kitchen in New York City. And it's one day, one working day in a very busy kitchen.
1: Alonso, we want to congratulate you all for taking the plunge (laughs) and making this extraordinary film. And we truly hope that you continue to work in this space because Clearly, you you have a lot to say and you bring a lot to the forum. So congratulations and thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, guys.